Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and blessings. We thank you for the cross and for the blood of your Son that cleanses from all sin. We thank you for the eternal truth of your word and for your own Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. As we ponder your word today, Lord God, our prayer is that you will open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to his glory and meaning. More than this, Father, that you'll give us the wisdom and courage to be not only hearers of your word, but doers also. I pray, Lord God, that in your mercy and your grace you'll bless this congregation, its leadership, the families, the people who are in it, and that your name would be glorified in our midst. We pray these things believing in the name of your Son, the one who saved us, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Let's begin at the beginning. The first command God ever gave to man, the first thing he ever told us to do, the first thing before Adam and Eve sinned, before anything happened, the first thing he told us, go forth and multiply. That was the first thing he told us. Now because sin has come into the world, there's actually a higher calling than holy matrimony. There's actually a higher calling than holy matrimony. If you are one of those relatively few people who have the grace to be single for the sake of the ministry and the work of the gospel, that is actually a higher calling than marriage, simply because of the fall of man and because of the demands of seeing people saved. That's an actual higher calling than marriage. But only a few people have that grace. Let's talk about the ones who have that grace first of all. When a man or a woman, a believer, I'm talking about Christians now, have the grace to be single, you'll always see three things. You will always see three things. First of all, it will be related to some kind of ministry God has called them to. If you're smuggling Bibles into Iran, you don't need a wife and kids back in Brixton because you might not see them again. It's somehow related to the ministry God has called you to. Secondly, People have a peace about it. They know they're in God's will. They don't worry about the biological clock ticking away or things like that. They have a peace about it. They have God's peace. They know that God has called them to that, and he gives them the grace to do it. The third thing is, it doesn't affect their masculinity or their femininity. It doesn't affect their masculinity or their femininity. And I'm not talking about sins of homosexuality, of course. I'm simply talking about demeanor. You see these guys who stay single for years when they don't have the grace to be single and they've been ironing their own shirts too long. They get dainty in their old age. I want the spoon over here with the napkin over here. 
Same with the mamas, who never became mamas, but they've been chopping the firewood too long. You lose your femininity. Now, when somebody has the grace to be single, they will not lose their femininity or their masculinity, as the case may be. But that's only certain people. Certain people have that grace. Certain people have that calling. That is actually a higher calling than marriage for those who are blessed with it. But that's not most of us. Most of us either get married or, at some point, plan to do so. The first thing he ever said, go forth and multiply, so let's begin at the beginning. But turn with me, first of all, please, to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife also, as Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, as Christ also does the church, because we are members of the body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Imagio Dei, a nice Latin term, means made in God's image and likeness. There are two primary ways that God teaches about his own nature through us. In other words, he made us the way we are to teach us about the way he is. He is triune. He has a body, a soul, and a spirit. When Adam heard God walking in the garden, it was Jesus. The Father or the Holy Spirit never appear in human form. When Abraham walked with God on the Mount of Elon Moray, that was Jesus. In the incarnation, that was Jesus. The Father or Spirit never become flesh. They never incarnate. Prepare thou a body for me. Although Jesus was pre-existent as God, he came in the flesh. God has a body, that's the Son. God has a spirit, the Holy Spirit. And God has a soul, a mind, who has known the mind of the Father. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Now the Darwinists say we simply have a body and a mind. We're simply monkeys with better DNA. Well, I didn't used to believe there was any evidence for Darwinism coming from a scientific background, but I do now. Now I believe there is evidence for Darwinism. Anybody who believes in the transmutation of recombinant DNA across the genus barrier must be related to a baboon. 
But that's the only evidence for Darwinism I've ever found. Anybody who believes it must be a second cousin of a monkey or something, because who else is going to believe it? No, we're three. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Okay? Body, a soul, and a spirit. Because we're made in God's image and likeness. God is love. The love of the spirit, in Greek, agape, unconditional. Somebody cannot agape unless they're spiritually empowered. One place in the New Testament, a non-Christian, a non-believer, is actually able to agape because they were so depraved they could unconditionally love evil. To agape, you must be empowered either by the Holy Spirit or by a demon. You can't agape unless you're empowered by a spirit. The love that takes place on the level of the spirit is agape. The love that takes place on the level of the mind, emotions, intellect, is called filio, filio, brotherly love like in Philadelphia. The love that takes place on the level of a body, a physical level, is called eros in Greek, eros. Now God created all these kinds of love, but he created in holy matrimony to work in tandem. Only in holy matrimony do you have all three forms of love involved. And the marital union, it is a spiritual union, it is a psychological union, it is a physical union. It involves agape love, filial love, and erotic love, all three. If one of the three is missing, there's going to be a problem in the marriage. As soon as Eve was created, Adam said, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. That's a Hebrew idiom. In other words, the person you marry should be somebody you are attracted to and who are attracted to you spiritually, psychologically, that means intellectually, emotionally, and physically. Now, it's not to say if that's not there, God can't make the marriage work anyway or put it where it ain't. He can't do anything. But ideally, you shouldn't marry somebody unless you're connected on all three levels. When God has joined together, it'll be flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. So either the person you're married to, you're attracted to them spiritually, psychologically, that is emotionally, intellectually, and physically, or if you're not, you need to pray that God will heal the marriage. Now, if you're not cohesively attracted, mutually attracted on those three levels, and you're single, don't marry that person. You're going to have problems in a marriage. Believe me, you're going to have problems in a marriage anyway. <laughs> <laughs> marriage is the first form of fellowship God ordained. The Hebrew word, hichuch, hichuch, friction. Iron sharpens iron. Thus a man strengthens his friend's countenance. Friction is meant to take place in fellowship. The first form of fellowship and the closest form of fellowship God ordained his marriage. He uses the friction to deal with our old nature. When your wife gets on your nerves. She may be wrong, but God is using that to deal with your old nature. Your husband might be driving you crazy. He might be wrong, but God is using that to deal with your old nature. Iron sharpens iron. Thus a man sentences his neighbor's countenance. 
That's not the problem. The problem is when we handle it the wrong way. When we fail to understand it's supposed to be that way. You see, when people fall in love and they're young and everything, it's I love you because, because, because. <laughs> and years later, it's I love you despite, despite, <laughs> despite. <laughs> then you're in love. <laughs> Before that, you're in love with love. <laughs> Ten years later, if you persevere in Christ and love them anyway, then you're in love. Then you're in love with them. You're no longer in love with love. You, 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 that, that, that teenage fantasy's gone out the window 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, forget that Cinderella stuff. That's not reality. That's gone. Now you're in love. So we have three, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Because we're made in God's image and likeness, he has a body, a soul, and a spirit. He's triune. But then there's something else. The Hebrew idiom for to consummate a marriage is niknas ba, niknas ba. And he went into it, and the Lord allowed her to conceive, like in the book of Ruth. Niknas ba. What happens in niknas ba? One person goes inside of another person, and a third person is procreated. It's one in three, it's three in one. It teaches about the Trinity. He makes us in his own image and likeness. Now God does not like the Trinity being interrupted. There's only one time God allowed the Trinity, the triunity, to be interrupted. When Jesus took our sin to give us his righteousness, his father turned his back on the son. His fellowship with the father was severed because he took our sin and he gave up his spirit. That's the only time it ever happened. It was a necessary evil for our sake to bring us salvation. That's the only time God ever allowed it. The Hebrew prayer of faith is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is oneness. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Oneness. That is the first and foremost reason God hates divorce. The permanency of a Christian marriage is to testify to the eternal unity of God himself. Oneness. Permanent oneness. He hates divorce. Our marriages as believers are to reflect the unity that takes place in himself. But let's go back to this idea of the husband shall cling to his wife. In Hebrew, the word is devik, devik. Devik is the modern Hebrew word for glue. The modern Hebrew word for tape, sticky tape, is sedet devik, literally a glue ribbon. But in Biblical Hebrew, it's something much more than that. It's not an adhesive, it's a cohesive. It's like the difference between glue and superglue. When you put on glue, you can rinse it off with warm water. You put on superglue, it's a bonding agent, a chemical reaction takes place, you have a transfer of electrons. 
I travel a lot internationally. We have orphanages in Africa for AIDS kids and things like that and stuff in the Far East and the Philippines. I gotta travel a lot. My cardiologist just told me to knock it off for a while. I gotta quit traveling so much and keep away from the haagen <laughs> But it's good to carry a tube of super glue. You break a latch on your suitcase, that'll hold it till you get back. Oh, you busted a heel on your boot? That'll hold it till you can get to a cobbler. It's a good thing to have. Used as directed. You get it in your eyelids, you got a big problem. That stuff comes in contact with mucosa tissue, you got a really big problem. Keep it away from kids. Oh, it's a good thing. As directed. Devic. The husband shall cling to. They asked Jesus the greatest commandment, and he said, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad, Baruch Shem Kvodo Ulmahuto Leolam Vaed, Vahavtecha, Et Adonai Elochecha, Em Kolevecha, Kol Nafshecha, Uva Kol Modecha. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is oneness. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Oneness. Not Yahid, the numeral one, oneness, a plural one, Achad. That's the same thing he told Adam and Eve. You shall become Achad, one flesh. Well, how can we understand the Trinity? We can understand it to an extent in this life, in this world. We'll understand it, obviously, to a greater extent when Jesus comes back, but right now, we can understand it to an extent, to know it's true, and see it in our lives. Did the Lord ever want you to witness to somebody, but you were tired? <laughs> Did the Lord ever want you to pray, but you were tired? Well, your body had one will, your spirit had another will. <laughs> There's a battle in your mind. <laughs> Yet it's all you. You're your body, you're your soul, you're your spirit. It's all you, but it's three different, three is it one as well. That teaches about the way God is. The difference is there was perfect harmony in his triunity. There's not in ours, there's always a struggle. Because this, the old nature, there's always a struggle with us. Well, so too, Ahad, you shall become Ahad. He sticks them together. He wants it permanent because he's permanent. His own oneness is permanent. Now let's go a bit further. Don't think divorce does not hurt kids. The rise of homosexuality and lesbianism in our society, the rise of juvenile delinquency in our society, I come from the United States originally, even though my family are Israeli. I'll tell you something, and I'm just being honest here. In 1949, in the United States, before Martin Luther King, before the Civil Rights, only one out of ten Afro-American children were born out of wedlock. Because you had a strong Christian influence in the black community. Now too much of black America has turned from Christ to crack cocaine, and I was a cocaine addict when I was in university. And too much of black America is being bamboozled by the lies of Islam. 
Seven out of ten Afro-American children in America are being born out of wedlock. What chance will these kids have? They are statistically predisposed to dropping out of school, to getting into everything. Now, before civil rights, it wasn't like that. There was a moral standard. The civil rights movement came out of the churches, going back to the 18th century. Even in this country, the anti-slavery movement in England was begun by John Wesley and those people, and it came out of the churches. Turn away from that. White America is not far behind. Hispanic America is really quite the same. I'm just using the example of African-Americans because I'm in a predominantly African, Afro-Caribbean church, but it would be the same anywhere. Something happened. You break up holy matrimony, society is heading for trouble. Now, the world's going to do that anyway. The world is going to do that anyway. But we're not supposed to be of the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. God hates divorce. It is not an option. So let's understand this further. That divorce is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt the kids. Let's go back to the super glue, the devic. If you want to stick something together permanently, that's the stuff to get. But if you don't want to stick it permanently, keep the cap on the tube. <laughs> keep your trousers on until you tie the knots. I'll tell you why. You get that super glue on your skin. The glue doesn't come off. Your skin comes off with it. The epithelium is ripped away from the subcutaneous epidermal tissue. <coughs> Once you become one flesh with somebody, and it ends, some of you is going with them. Some of them is going to go with you. This is what God joined together. When I was a kid, I was a communist. And uh, I was shacking up with my girlfriend in New York. I was on drugs. And uh, we had a whole relationship that was largely based on sexual immorality. That's what it was about. I'm not proud of it, that's what it was about. I got saved, she got saved. Rest of my drugs went out the window, crossed the street from the United Nations, 20 stories down. It's a good thing the Polish ambassador had diplomatic immunity. <laughs> I got saved, then she got saved. The leader of Jews for Jesus in New York at the time told me, look, you either get married or you get out. First thing. <laughs> I can go into any church in the world, that's a sister in faith, that's a sister in faith, that's a sister in faith, that's all sister in faith. Her, although God forgave what I did, God forgave what she did, there's still something there that never should be there outside of marriage. Now God forgave the sin, the condemnation is gone, but something has happened. 
I love her in Jesus as a sister, but it's perverted to sleep with your sister. Shouldn't have happened. No, the guilt is gone. But the relationship? Why? Because you know. You know. Lada'at, to know. I was asked to explain this from a Jewish perspective. The Hebrew word is mekudesh, mekudesh, to make holy. From Ikodesh, to make holy. On the Day of Atonement, the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies and bring the blood sacrifice of the scapegoats on behalf of the people before the Holy Ark. It was a curtain, nobody could go back of it, not even the priests. Now Jews could know what was in the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kodeshim, they could know what was in there. All they had to do was read the Torah. It would tell you what was in there. The Ark was in there. But they were not to know what it was like to go in there. Objectively, they were to know what it was. But they were not to subjectively know what it was, experience it. It's like Adam and Eve. When they were put in the garden, they were told to Subdue. Adam and Eve were to know what sin was, but they were not to know it within themselves by experience. <laughs> you can know what a, knocking off an armored car, pulling a bank job is. You can know what it is. Pick up the newspaper and read what it is. But you're not supposed to know what it's like to do it. <laughs> There's to know and to know. Before the high priest could go in to make atonement, he had to undergo this elaborate ritual called Mekudesh, to be set apart by God. That's what holy means, set apart by God. Only the person set apart by God was to understand this mystery of what it was like to go into the Holy of Holies. Well, it's the same word for marriage in Hebrew. When you get married, you get married under a hoopah, a, a banner, like from the Song of Solomon, his banner over me is love, and you take the ring and you say, with this ring I wed thee according to the laws of Moses and Israel. Then you step on a wine glass. Then you've had it, brother. <laughs> that was the last time I ever put my foot down. I wed thee, and he may kudeshit lock. God sets this man apart to this woman. God sets this woman apart to this man. Just like the high priest had to be set apart to know what it was like to go in to the Holy of Holies. Now God set this man apart to know what it was like to niknas ba, to go inside of that woman. If anyone other than the high priest went in there, it was an abomination. The Antichrist is going to go in there. It's a picture of the Antichrist. Whenever you see somebody other than the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, there's a picture of the Antichrist. Thessalonians and Revelation saw. Daniel. But the same in marriage. When anyone other than the one set apart by God goes in there into a female, it's an abomination. 
The temple of God is being defiled. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not being loved, girly. You're being defiled. You're being used. You're not being loved. Love is a commitment. What is the commitment? Love your wife the way Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He died for her. Unless that man is willing to die for you, he has no right to touch you sexually and you have no right to give yourself to him because your body is not your own. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit bought with the blood of Jesus. God's temple is being defiled. Great stuff, that devic. Great stuff, superglue. Used as directed. But until there is mekudesh, keep the cap on the tube or you will wind up wishing you did. No exceptions. Now again, most of us were fornicators and all of that stuff before we got saved. God knows that. The blood of Jesus has atoned for those sins. I'm talking now about Christians. His first command, go forth and multiply. Holy matrimony is under attack as never before, but it's always been attacked. That was the first thing Satan attacked. He does not want the image and likeness of God being reflected, recapitulated on the earth. You understand, it's a picture of Jesus going inside of the church, causing the church to be fruitful. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Marital romance is a picture of Jesus going inside of his bride. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord our God. Does that mean it's not erotic? No, it's highly erotic. But being erotic, as God designed and created Eros, doesn't make it any less holy. Sex was God's idea. He invented it. He corrupted it. Once you step on the wine glass, pull the cap off the tube and get on with it. But not until. Homosexuality. Instead of Adam and Eve, we have Adam and Steve. There was a church, probably less than an hour's walk from here, in Southwark, a cathedral where Christians were martyred under Queen Mary. I will tell you a true story. This was about 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And this was an Anglican church. It had the first quote-unquote gay and lesbian service. And an Anglican clergyman and women dressed in their Anglican vestments holding hands and kissing in the church. The BBC broadcasted it. Out front, there was a handful, a small handful of, of Christians protesting. They were called homophobes. That same night when this was going on, being broadcast, in another Anglican church on the other side of the Thames, in Holy Trinity, Brompton, I'm only telling you the facts, they were having a service at the same time. Only instead of getting on the floor and weeping, they were on the floor 
in drunken hysterics, laughing uncontrollably with their Toronto thing. And they were being told by their pastors there's a revival and God's moving in his life. In their own church on the other side of the river, there's an abomination. This is sick. This is sick. Of the five biggest Protestant denominations in Great Britain, the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, the Methodist Church, the United Reformed Church, and the Presbyterian Church, all five are ordaining homosexuals and lesbians. Kensington Temple, Elam, who's directing its Bible school? A homosexual. An attack on marriage. Divorce is an attack on marriage. The world will use sexuality as an advertising gimmick to try to sell us everything from pop records to spring fashion to toothpaste. Just a way to make money and market stuff. But there's more to it than that. There's a spirit on the back of it. It is an attack on marriage. God wants agape. God wants filio. And God wants eros. All working together in perfect harmony. The devil doesn't even like eros. The world thinks eros is it, but the devil doesn't like eros. He's simply using eros by taking it away from agape. In other words, he's misusing eros to try to destroy agape. It's not because the devil likes sex. The devil doesn't like sex. If he can corrupt it and use it for his purpose, that's okay with him. C.S. Lewis understood this. But it's not even about that. He, he doesn't like that either. It's just that it's, it, it's to his advantage to corrupt it and use it to destroy agape. Well, let's go further with this. The first form of fellowship God ordained was holy matrimony. When Jesus comes inside of the church, the church is fruitful. When the husband, who's a picture of Christ, goes inside of his wife, she becomes fruitful. There's only two ways to populate heaven. A baby being born and bringing them up in the faith and them getting saved at a young age. Or people being born again. There's only two ways to populate heaven. Well, having children and bringing them up in the ways of Jesus is a very good way to populate heaven. Remember, we are made in his image and likeness. Why do we desire romance and marital intimacy? Because God does. That's what he wants with Israel. That's what Christ wants with the church. That's the meaning of the Song of Solomon, symbolically. We want that because God wants it. And he made us in his image and likeness to teach us what he likes, what he wants. But it goes beyond this. The devil doesn't like it. Then there's the other mode of attack. The Roman Catholic mode of attack on marriage. We're told in Timothy, forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. 
Most of the apostles apart from Paul were married. There's no biblical basis to say there's a clergy apart from the priesthood of all believers. And there's certainly no biblical basis for celibacy. He made them male and female and said it is good. God says it's good. The world will say it's bad. Isaiah tells us, woe to them who calls good evil and evil good. In the United States, there are 179 Roman Catholic dioceses and archdioceses. In two, litigation is pending. In 177, every Roman Catholic bishop, archbishop, and cardinal has been found liable in court for protecting pedophile nuns and priests at the expense of not protecting their own children. Same in Britain, same in New Zealand, same in Canada, same in Australia, and worse in Catholic countries like Ireland and Brazil and the Philippines. What is it about? It's an attack on marriage. That's what's on back of the pornography industry. That's what is on back of homosexuality. That's what is on back of Roman Catholicism. When God says it's good and you outlaw what is natural, people will do something unnatural. <laughs> it comes from an ancient Gnostic cult called Mancianism. Their Saint Augustine was a Mancian, and he brought this Mancian idea that everything physical was bad and everything spiritual was ethereal and good. So therefore, because marriage was physical, it was bad. That's <laughs> what he thought. He said the only good thing about marriage is having children who will be celibate. That's what they actually taught. For over 1,200 years, the Roman Catholic Church said that. The higher Christians are the ones who serve God. They go into monasteries and convents. The others are simply the breeding stock. What's the purpose of, of, of marriage? To breed children, to be priests and nuns and monks and stuff like that. And they're the breeding stock. And the ones who don't become priests and nuns will make them the next generation of breeding stock. That's how it was. An attack on marriage. Molesting kids. That's the result of it. No... It's under attack. Marriage is under attack not only in the society we live in, it's under attack in the church. And it's under attack in this church. It comes from the devil. It involves the world, it involves our flesh, it involves all kinds of things but we know where it comes from. It's an attack. I'm telling you, somebody is going to get hurt. When I was first saved in the early 1970s, I never knew two saved Christians who got divorced and remarried. I didn't know anybody like that. And I didn't even know anybody who knew anybody like that. When you had a Christian who was divorced and remarried, it was, it happened before they were saved. Or, 
they got saved and they had an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife who left them. <laughs> that was it. Two saved Christians getting divorced. It was unheard of only 30 years ago. Now, to our indictment, the divorce rate among evangelicals in Britain and America is as high as the secular world. You've got preachers who are divorced and remarried, pastors, televangelists, some of them multiple times. These men have no right to be in ministry, none, none. The reasons God allows for divorce are very, very, very few. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us if you have an unsaved husband or an unsaved wife, consent to live with them. Through your faith, they will be sanctified. Not saved, but sanctified for the sake of your children. In other words, they're sanctified temporarily, as are your children, until either they die, they get saved, or they leave you. <laughs> they leave you. They die. Or, ideally, they get saved. If that unbelieving husband or wife leaves you, particularly if they go off with another, you have grounds. If they go into serial adultery and won't repent, they become as a non-believer, Paul says. You have grounds. Now, even then, even if, God forbid, your husband or your wife did fall into adultery in one situation, difficult as it is, it would still be better to ask God for the grace to forgive them, give them another shot. If possible, that would be the best. God always prefers repentance and reconciliation. It's only if they've gone into it and they won't repent You've got a door out. They've left you. You haven't left them. That's it. That's it. Anything other than that? No. The last resort of last resorts for believers. The last resort for two Christians having marital problems. The last resort is separation. 1 Corinthians 7. Separation with the door left open to the aspiration of eventual reconciliation. In other words, you don't get divorced, you don't get remarried, you pray that the Lord will heal the marriage. That superglue sticks permanently. That's it. You made a vow. It's not about primarily your relationship with her or her relationship with you. Your relationship with him, it's not about that. It's primarily about your relationship with God. <laughs> Whenever a Christian marriage crashes, it is because one of them 
is in a wrong relationship with Jesus. There is no such thing as a marriage where both he and her are in a right relationship with Jesus that the marriage fails. Struggle? Yes. Fail? No. 1 Corinthians 13, God's love, agape love, does not fail because indeed it cannot fail. It cannot fail. When you see a Christian marriage fail, it's because one of them is in a wrong relationship with Jesus. And today I'm seeing churches allow people to get divorced and remarried with no biblical grounds. They are in adultery. They're living in whoredom. There's a place in the north of England that practices quote-unquote deliverance ministry. Another joke. Not one place in scripture do you ever see a demon being cast out of a saved Christian. You see a place that has a deliverance ministry, do what I do. Pick up the phone and give them a call. You have a deliverance ministry tonight? Oh yes, 7.30. Good, send over two cheeseburgers of raw onions. Don't forget the coleslaw. The guy running this joint, they call it El Al Grange, I call it Hell Al Grange. He left the Christian wife to marry a babe. How did he justify it? He accused her of spiritual adultery. She didn't commit adultery, so he accused her of spiritual adultery. Now in the scripture, spiritual adultery was the Hebrew analogy for when Israel went into idolatry. God called the idolatry adultery. Daughter of Zion, you played the harlot. In the scripture, that's spiritual adultery. When Israel went after other gods. Or it's in the New Testament in James' epistle as well. You adulteresses, worldly churches. It's when God's people go after other gods. That's called spiritual adultery. That's the biblical definition of it. In both testaments. Because this guy's whole lady didn't sleep around. She didn't mess around or anything like that. He had no ground, so he invented them. And now he's casting demons out of other people. He ought to cast a demon out of himself, stand in front of a mirror. Yet people go there and give them money and everything. They are living in whoredom. Look what Jesus said. Come with me to the Sermon on the Mount, please. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 32. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of pornea, pornea, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If you divorced another Christian, when there was no adultery by them. And then you married somebody else, you are living in adultery in the eyes of Christ and you will give account one day. That is what it says. You are living in whoredom. You had no right to do it.
churches who allow people living in this state to take the Lord's Supper? <coughs> they are eating and drinking judgment to themselves. They are eating and drinking judgment to themselves. They can become physically ill. They can even die prematurely, we're told in Corinthians. How can a church allow this? No. Sit in the back. Don't come to the Lord's table. You're not a communicant. You're not part of this church until you repent. Back, 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 back. It's not like that. That glue sticks forever. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. But she's no longer attractive to me. Yeah, take a look in the mirror, Charlie. <laughs> Who are you, Brad Pitt? That's the way it is. That is the way it is. You know, I just think about it. In my youth, I was a radical, I was a communist. I supported militant blacks like the Black Panther Party and things like this. I liked Martin Luther King and all of that, but he was a man of peace, I was a man of revolution. I didn't come to respect him until later I came to realize he was right and I was wrong. But at the time I was sympathetic to the radicals. I was a commune. Uh, it's been a long time since then, half a century nearly, yet the socioeconomic plight of most American blacks has not improved despite civil rights. Why? Because civil rights came about because of Christianity, not Islam, and because black Americans had Christian values. It would have been a shame and a disgrace to have a child out of wedlock. You know, in places like New York and California, people didn't know what born again meant before the 1970s. Then we knew about that in the Bible Belt. But every black American I ever met knew what it meant because they all had a little gray-haired grandmother praying for their salvation who was a Pentecostal or a Baptist. There was very few Afro-Americans who didn't have Christians in their family. That was then. Now, it's gone. The moral fiber is gone. It's no longer about what the white establishment or the white honky pig, as I used to call them, are doing to the black people or to the Indians. It's what people are doing to themselves because they turned from the faith of their fathers and their grandparents. Nobody can correct that except God, and that requires repentance. Nothing else is going to change it. Having kids out of wedlock is terrible. Keep the cap on the glue. It's supposed to be a mystery. Only the high priest was to know what it was like to go in there. 
Only the one who's Mekudesh, only the husband, was to know what it was like to go in there. Objectively, the Jew could read the Torah and know that the ark was in there. And objectively, somebody can get a copy of Gray's textbook of anatomy or go on the internet and look at microslides of fallopian tubes and ovarian tissue all night long. Anybody can know what's in there, but you're not supposed to know what it's like to go in there unless you are set apart. It is holy. Erotic, absolutely. But holy. Set apart by God. When you marry, you are playing out, you are reflecting God's desired relationship with Israel. You are reflecting Christ's desired relationship with his bride, the church. When you sleep with your wife or your husband, you are recapitulating the oneness of God himself. Three in one, one in three. These things are holy. They're bigger than ourselves. When you get married, when you procreate in a marriage, we are doing things that are bigger than ourselves. And if we get it wrong, it affects others beyond ourselves. It affects our children, our loved ones, our churches, our societies, our races, our countries. It's not your business. <laughs> if somebody is going around with an infectious disease that's airborne contagion, it's not, that's my business. <laughs> they can infect other people. Infect other people. The attack is here. The attack is in this church. I'll tell you something. The scriptures tell us directly it's better to marry than to burn with lust. I respect people who will get married rather than fall into fornication, and the scripture says that. But make sure it is the flesh of your flesh, bone of your bone. Make sure you are compatible with that person spiritually, same doctrines and so forth, psychologically, intellectually, and physically. You find them attractive. If you don't, you're giving the devil ammunition. He's going to find what's missing and use that to attack the marriage once you are married. Now, if you're already in the marriage and you're struggling, there's only one solution. The solution is not what is in her or in you. It's not about that in terms of the solution. The problem is not about what's wrong with her or what's wrong with him. That might be the problem, but it's not the solution. The solution is not what's wrong with anybody. The solution is what's right with Jesus. A struggling marriage is a difficult cross to carry. But his burden is light. He heals relationships. Don't underestimate his power to do it, no matter what the struggle is. 
if you are looking to Jesus and trusting Jesus and asking him for the power to love that wife the way he loves the church, he's going to give it to you. And if you are asking Jesus to give you the power to respect that man as the church should respect Christ, he's going to give it to you. Notice it says, husbands love your wives. The initiative is on the husband to love. The initiative to respect and submit is on the wife. But it's a lot easier for a woman to place herself in submission to a man who she knows loves her that would give himself for her the way Christ gave himself for the church. It's a lot easier for her to be in subjection to somebody like that. You see, the fault, there's always blame on both sides. But there's a difference between whose fault it is and whose problem it is. When Adam and Eve sinned, even though sin came through Eve first, when Jesus came into the garden, he said, Adam, where are you? Oh, the woman did, did the woman gave me, I'm talking to you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> if something goes wrong in my family or my marriage, God forbid, but we all struggle. If something goes wrong in your family, your marriage, it may not be your fault, although it probably at least partially is. But even if it isn't your fault, it's your problem because you are God's authority in that relationship. This rubbish of women pastors, it is garbage. Let me tell you why. We'll conclude shortly. Because of sin, because of the fall, Men have become insensitive. Women have become hypersensitive. When a husband and wife get saved, it's usually the wife who gets saved first. If the husband gets saved first, the wife usually, not always, but usually becomes a believer. But when it's the other way, I've known many, many godly Christian women who've struggled not just years, decades with unbelieving husbands. Why is it easier for women to get saved? They're more sensitive. When a husband and wife pray for direction, it is usually the wife who hears from the Lord first and clearest. Why? Because men are thick. Women are more sensitive. On the other hand, anything God intends for good, rest assured, the world, the flesh, and the devil will corrupt it for evil. So while it's easier for women to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, it is also easier for women to hear the voice of a counterfeit spirit and fall into spiritual seduction. Men are reliant on female sensitivity in a marriage. Women are reliant on male protection. Men are reliant on female sensitivity. Women are reliant on male protection. Because of the fall, 
the male antenna is too short. It can only pick up a very strong signal. But when it picks up the signal, it's the right one. The female antenna is too long. It picks up anything. <laughs> including two mutually contradicting signals at the same time. <laughs> and somehow, don't ask me how, they can make sense of it. <laughs> Except that it makes no sense. Think of submission as protection. If you're not protecting that woman spiritually, why should she be in submission to you? Oh, she's wrong if she isn't, but it's your fault. She doesn't want to. Now that the feminism of the secular world is permeating the church, <laughs> this women pastors thing, it's not primarily the fault of women. It's the fault of men for not taking responsibility. But it doesn't begin in the church. It ends there. It begins when you say, Or in your case, I do. <laughs> We don't get six, Jews don't get 16 wives, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. They only get one. <laughs> That's where it begins. The attack is underway. Don't let the attack overtake you. It'll come to your door. Don't let it in. Divorce is not a solution. It's not a solution. Jesus is the solution. What he has joined together, let no one put asunder. God bless.